Well, good morning, ZPC, you brood of vipers. Um, if you weren't here last week, I apologize, uh, but you'll just have to watch the sermon, and then you won't be uh, quite as offended. Um, so it is good to be here with you this morning. Uh, before we uh, go into Scripture this morning, I do want to uh, bring up one thing, which is just this reminder that we are in the middle of, uh, of our silence challenge here at ZPC, and so... Um, over these three months, we started back in September to go through the end of this year where uh, we were really encouraging you to create some silence, to cultivate silence, knowing that when we are busy and when the world around us is too loud, it is really hard for us to be able to hear God. And so we gave you uh, three suggestions for doing this. You could choose one of those or do something else on your own, just as a reminder of what those were. Take 10 minutes at the beginning of the day before you uh, check your emails or before you turn on the news or whatever it is that you do in the morning and just kind of be still before the Lord. Uh, that was one option. Another option was the first time that you're in your vehicle alone um, to just use that particular ride, however long it is, just to be able to be quiet. Don't turn on the radio or a podcast and just simply be. Uh, the third option was to take you know, three or four days out of the week and go for a walk and for about 30 minutes just be still. Again, don't listen to anything other than the nature around you and just simply be still and just see what happens. I'm not going to promise you that all of a sudden the angels are going to appear out of nowhere or that you're going to hear, um, you know, um, visibly or I don't know how you hear visibly, audibly uh, the word of God. But I do think that when we put ourselves in a position to simply be still before the Lord, that we might be surprised at the way that in which the Lord Work. So I want to encourage to kind of bring this up. If you've been doing this, I encourage you to kind of talk to me. Let me uh, know how it's going. And uh, I know it's not easy. It's a challenge. It can be frustrating at times. But I do think that this is so often the way in which the Lord works. And now we are continuing uh, in our look at the Gospel of Luke. Now, as you know, we said that we were going to go through the whole thing. Which means we're going to go through passages that... Um, that you love, and we're going to go through, touch on some passages that we would likely perhaps skip over. And this one, get ready for it, because it is a lengthy list of names. Oh, I see that pained look. You think you're pained. Think about me all week having to think through this. But this is what we're going to do, because we believe that all Scripture is God-breathed, and so we are going to read through this. So be patient and just Breathe it in. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 through 38. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his work. He was the son, as was thought, of Joseph, son of Heli, son of Methot, son of Levi, son of Melchi, son of Janai, son of Joseph, son of Mattathias, son of Amos, son of Nahum, son of Esli, son of Nagai, son of Math, and son of Mattathias, son of Semine, son of Jotik, son of Jodah, son of Joanan, son of Risa, son of Zerubbabel, Son of Sheatil, son of Neri, son of Melchi, son of Adi, son of Kosam, son of Amadam, son of Er. 
son of Joshua, son of Eleazar, son of Joram, son of Mathat, son of Levi, son of Simeon, son of Judah, son of Joseph, son of Jonam, son of Eliakim, son of Malaya, son of Mena, son of Matatha, son of Nathan, son of David, son of Jesse, son of Obed, son of Boaz, son of Selah, son of Nashon, son of Aminadab, son of Admin, son of Arni, son of Hezron, son of Perez, son of Judah, son of Jacob, son of Isaac, son of Abram, son of Terah, son of Nahor, son of Serug, son of Reu, son of Peleg, son of Eber, son of Shelah, son of Canaan, son of Arphaxad, son of Shem, son of Noah, son of Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalil, son of Canaan, son of Enos, son of Seth, son of Adam, son of God. <laughs> She's just clapping because it's over. Sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God and let us pray. God, we do thank you for who you are. And we thank you, Lord, that because you are the Son of God, it changes who we are. It changes how we understand ourselves. And so we pray that you would help us to live into this reality. I pray, Lord, that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts, will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen and amen. So as I said, um, this was a long list of names. Maybe you got an idea if you have a son in the future for what you might want to name one of your children by going through this lengthy list. Uh, I got to tell you, at one point during this week, I just kind of buried my head into my hands and I kept thinking to myself, why? Why? Why did I not let Scott preach this Sunday? I mean, it is a long list of names, and so I, was, uh, I took some kind of solace in the fact that as I was reading over folks, there was one person who said, you know, we modern folks, we don't really know what to do with these kind of genealogies, and the truth is that we would much prefer to skip over it and go to the more interesting parts of the gospel. And to be sure, if I hadn't said we were going to go through the whole thing, I would likely have read one or two names and said, you get the idea, and then just kind of moved on with the Scripture. But we have the genealogy in here, and the question is, what exactly do we do with this? Well, let's begin by saying that we're not going to completely understand this, uh, as is likely the case, but there certainly is some sense of things that we might learn. Now, people, of course, go in lots of different ways about this. Uh, some people are confused by the fact that, that it's right here in the gospel. Matthew also has a genealogy, uh, not quite as lengthy, but he has it nonetheless. Uh, but it starts at the very beginning of the gospel, which makes a bit more sense than just kind of couched right here at Luke Three. Others point out um, uh, the, the, the confusion over the fact that Matthew's genealogy and Luke's genealogy are different. So how could this be possible? And some would suggest, well, um, um, Matthew is doing kind of the royal names, the throne names of people, whereas Luke is doing the given names, perhaps. Others, uh, Pastor Stan brings this up, uh, that there are some scholars who would suggest that, well, if Mary had no brothers, then, uh, then really, then Joseph's father would also be Mary's father. And so perhaps what we see going on here is that while Matthew traces the lineage of Joseph, that 
actually Luke is tracing the lineage of Mary, perhaps. Others get very interested in the numbers aspect of it. How many numbers, how many names were there? Nobody counted? 77, great job, you counted. You should be paying attention to scripture, not counting. All right, so... 77, good job, Chuck, 77. And so some people say, well, you know what? This is a number of perfection twice, right? Seven and seven, and that's a wonderful thing. Others would suggest, well, let me just read to you what one other person suggests. He says this, well, counting from Jesus, significant names appear at multiples of seven generations. 21 generations from Jesus to Sheatil, 42 generations to David, 56 generations to Abraham, and 70 generations to Enoch. In other words, Luke has so structured Jesus' genealogy that there are three sevens of generations. From Jesus to Sheatil, three sevens from Sheatil to David, two sevens from David to Abraham, and three sevens from Abraham to Adam. Therefore, Jesus begins the 12th sequence of seven. This was my week. Now, there are people who love this. Actuaries love this, perhaps. Maybe even some engineers, biblical scholars who really love this kind of number numerology. They just get into it, and that is fine. And there may be a gold mine of a sermon in those numbers, but I will not provide that particular sermon for you. It just doesn't say much to me personally. But that does not mean that I don't think that this genealogy is important. Because I think, especially in this day and age, actually, uh, genealogies in some way are kind of trending. Part of that is because of technology. You've got things like Ancestry.com and 23andMe, those DNA tests. How many of you have taken one of those DNA tests? Yeah, quite a few of you, right? And so we've got this kind of this sense of people wondering, like, you know, well, I'd like to be able to trace my genealogy. Obviously, with the advent of the uh, of, of internet. All of a sudden now, other people have done a lot of the work for us, and so we can begin to just kind of dive in and see and, and trace back where exactly have we come from. But I don't just think it's genealogy, or excuse me, uh, technology. I think that there's other reasons as well why it is that we are interested in genealogies in our time. I was reading one uh, Rutgers professor, and he kind of did some uh, research on this. He's a sociology professor, and he said, you know, there's lots of reasons, but maybe two primary reasons why. One reason, he says, is legitimacy. He says genealogy oftentimes gives us a sense of legitimacy. He, he brought up an example of the Shah of Iran and how when he was taking over many years ago, he, he, he helped to kind of trace back how he was connected to the king of Persia from long, from 2,500 years ago, and how this helped to give him some prestige. I think in America, maybe, uh, uh, one example I had is, is, is Ireland. Uh, you know, most Americans, many Americans that I know, they, they love they, they St. Patrick's Day, and they want to say that they're Irish. Right, and there's this. If everybody from America was literally Irish, about 110% of Americans would be Irish. I'm convinced, right? We want this, and so if you can, you know, go back and do your uh, your DNA and, and show by doing one of these things. Oh, look at that! Look how much of me is Irish. I knew it. There's a certain amount of prestige that goes alongside of that, and and for Luke, when he brings up this genealogy of Jesus, one of the prestige aspects of that is this: it traces back, of course, through King David. Right? And there's this sign that when Luke does this, he wants us to know, he wants us to be able to see how the blood of Jesus is this royal blood, if you will, and how it clearly goes through David, that this is from whence the Messiah has come. 
But this professor from Rutgers, he also says it's not just legitimacy. He also says one of the main reasons that we are interested in genealogy is for a sense of identity. That a genealogy that going back gives us a sense of trying to understand who we are. If we can trace back a little bit further, then we might be able to know exactly who we are. It might help us to understand our identity in a deeper way. I was, I was reminded when I was thinking about that about 25 years ago or so, uh, you know, I've always been American. And, um, and I always was like, this is great. I love being American. And then I started working with refugees. And I started working with refugees, and they were from places like Kosovo and, and Serbia and, and Egypt and Afghanistan. And, and you would talk to them. And as they began to describe who they were, they could go back generation after generation after generation. And they were all from like the same place, the same country, many of them from the exact same town. And that I, I realized that, you know, I'm just kind of like a mutt compared to that. And, and, and being American is great, please hear me, but I love the way that they were rooted. They had this clear sense, this is who I am, just by simply kind of knowing from where they've come and the fact that generation after generation had come from that place. There was a, just a sense of identity. So I did one of those uh, 23andMe tests, and I was like, oh, I pray that I am full-blooded Irish, because that's what we want. And, and it came back, and I am from Ireland. And Scotland, and England, and Norway, and Denmark, and some nebulous region called Northwest Europe, and 2% Portuguese, which explains my tan. <laughs> I have absolutely no idea from whence that comes. And actually, then I was just sad. Because it didn't do anything to help me with any kind of real sense of identity. It did nothing to clarify that at all. But I think that Luke, when he does this genealogy, one of the things that he is trying to do is he is once again helping us to see who Jesus is. In fact, Keith Nickel points out, throughout the first three chapters of Luke, this is a good thing about going through slowly a book of the Bible, we see that this is exactly what Luke has been doing. He has been making a case of the identity of who this Jesus is. It started with Mary when Gabriel came down and said, you are about to give birth, right, to the Messiah. It continued with Elizabeth whenever John jumped inside of her and Elizabeth said, I can't believe, how do I get to be with you? The mother of, of, of the Messiah, basically, it came when Gabriel came to the, or when the angels, as he said, came to the shepherds and said, hey, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who was Christ the Lord. We saw it with Simeon. Remember when Simeon, old Simeon, could finally die? now because he had seen the Messiah. We saw it two weeks ago when Jesus was in the temple and he said, wouldn't you know I'd be in my father's house. We saw it last week when John the Baptist was inferring that someone was coming next who was going to be the one who really was the Messiah. Again and again, what Luke is trying to do is he writes this book probably to Gentiles, is he is trying to say to them, this is who Jesus is. Jesus is the Messiah. And this genealogy does this by going back all all the way through all of these people and reaching Adam and then saying that Adam was the son of God, of course, and there's this connection between lowercase son of God and Adam and, and, and uppercase son of God being uh, Jesus. But N.T. Wright and others also point this out. I want you to hear this, that this is also an invitation. You see, he went all the way back to Adam 
Which means, of course, from the very beginning, that all of us then, all of us, if you could do a 23andMe or an Ancestry.com, that there is this sense that we are all connected, right? By going back, he's saying not only do we begin to see that Jesus comes from the very beginning, but that all of us in one way or another are connected with one another. And remember, this is what we've been talking about. Luke is then showing us once again in this tapestry of faith of the kingdom of God, how all of us are connected to this story from the person who told us we could go back in our own spiritual genealogy who told us and helped us to experience Jesus to the one before to the one before and if you keep tracing it back you go all the way back to this story that Luke is describing right now we are invited in this genealogy of who Jesus is a genealogy helps us to remember one's identity which is why I wanted to start with that before we take one step back to Jesus' baptism. What is this baptism of Jesus? Why was Jesus baptized? You know, um, some point out that in the Gospel of Luke, Luke spills a lot of ink to talk about all of Jesus kind of growing up, or not growing up, but, but his being born much more than other gospel writers. Uh, Jesus, or Luke has this story about when Jesus was 12 years old. Nobody else has that. Uh, he has the story about the baby um, going up to, uh, to Simeon and, and, uh, and Anna, as we've talked about. All of these, and yet when he gets to the baptism, it's very muted. He, he, he talks about it in a very short way compared to others. He doesn't describe it in any great detail at all. And the question is why, and some would suggest that maybe the church was actually embarrassed that Jesus was baptized. Why would Jesus need to be baptized? Remember, this is coming out. Remember last week, John the Baptist, brood of vipers, a baptism of repentance. Why, if Jesus is perfect, would Jesus ever need to be baptized? And I want to suggest this morning that a part of that reason is because it helps us to remember that a part of what baptism is about is about identity. Remember, what does God the Father say? He says, this is my son, this is my child. That the baptism was a way of God claiming Jesus as his child. But here's what I also want you to hear. He does not just say, this is my child. What does he actually say? Well, in the NRSV, it says this. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Now, I got to be honest with you. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased feels a little bit stilted. You know, and so I, I, I don't really like the way that it's, I mean, it's kind of like if your kid came home and, you know, you're like, oh, here it is, my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Most of us don't have that good of grammar. Most of us do not say with whom, right? Usually if it's a kid, you're like, oh, I love you, I'm proud of you, which is why I like the way the message says it. The message describes it like this. It says, this is my son, chosen and marked by my love, pride of my life. Can you imagine that if you're Jesus hearing that from God the Father? This is my child loved and marked. I am proud of you. And it brings up this kind of fascinating question, which is whether or not Jesus needed to hear that. 
That makes us a little uncomfortable. It makes me a little uncomfortable to think, well, Jesus, you know, it was important for Jesus to hear this from his father, you know. Why, does, why would Jesus, would he really need that? And I would suggest, I think maybe he did. You know, he needed food because he was fully human. And he needed this affirmation of love. In fact, he would continue to need that just like all of us need that. And you know Many of us, hopefully probably far too many of us, know what it is like to not know for sure the love of a father or a mother, to not have that sense of pride. But here, right here, I want you to see God in this way because oftentimes it is hard for us to see God like this. We see God as being distant or, or God as, just, as being one who just doles out punishment. That's what makes God happy. But here we have in this remarkably intimate scene, I want you to picture this. There is God looking at Jesus, God the Father, and he says, this is my child. I love him. I am proud of him. And this baptism marks this identity of who Jesus is. That baptism claims you as a child of God. And that's what I think is so important for us to remember today in this passage when it comes to baptism. That your primary identity is in the fact that you are a loved child of God. Because you know what? There are so many other claims on our identity there are so many other voices and roles that will say, no, 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 no. Your primary identity is in this or it is in that. And we easily begin to forget our baptism. And we easily begin to forget that we in first and foremost are loved children of God. A part of the reason why it's hard is because our identities, they easily, they just get enmeshed in us and we don't even realize it's happening. So, for instance, um, you know, one of the things that happened when I was in Germany, I've mentioned this to a few of you before. This past summer, I spent four weeks by myself in Germany. Uh, there was uh, my wife and, and kids were here, and, uh, um, and, and it was weird. It was about, about four or five days into it, I can remember just walking along the streets of Freiburg, and I just realized that nobody really knew who I was, that I had no real purpose for anybody here, I played no role. I was really virtually an absolute nobody, right? Which was, you know, I don't say that to say poor me as much as just to say it was incredibly unsettling. It was a weird feeling. You know, when I'm here, I don't even think about it. I just know that when I'm here, I'm a pastor. You know, I've talked about that before. I, I don't lay on the horn as much as I would like to because I know that this could be a zpc -er in front of me. You know, I mean, I, I, I just know that that's always the case, right? And so it's always kind of over my head. You know, I don't, I don't really necessarily even think about it. It's just who I am now, right? I don't want to, you know, make a zpc -er mad if I don't have to. I, I like it at times, but not driving. And so, you know, it's just who I am. I'm just, I'm a husband. That's just, that's just what I don't even think about it. You're just a husband, right? Okay, you pick up the phone and please hear me. I was still a husband in Germany. I get it, but you know what I'm saying. I'm a father, right? I understand that, right? When I go home, there should be kids there, and, and I'm going to be the dad, and it's just a part of who I am, and it's great, and it's wonderful. Please hear me. But all of a sudden, I was reminded as I was there, I was like, wait a second, who am I? No, nobody's you know, clamoring for this or that. I've got no image to try to protect. Who 
is Jerry Deck. And it was just this remarkably weird space to be able to just say, wait, who am I and what, what does it mean to be Jerry? And, and have I forgotten at times that first and foremost, who I am is not a father or a husband or a pastor, but is a loved child of God. Now, you see, a lot of us, you know, we, we may have moments like this when we, when, we, uh, when we experience this. It may come in a different way. Sometimes we experience it, um, let's see here, when, you, uh, when your children go off to college. I see this a lot of times with empty nesters who they leave, and the question then is this, who am I? Right? You pump so much energy, yet you're, it's very easy to happen. All of a sudden, this is my identity as a parent. I'm a mom or a dad. And as soon as they leave, then all of a sudden, wait, who am I? I see it with spouses sometimes. Maybe you've gone through a divorce or, or, or you've become a widow or a widower. And, and, and you've lived into this, especially if you've, if you've been a caretaker um, um, for your spouse. And all of a sudden, you realize, wait, wait, wait. Who am I? Other times we see it in jobs, right? When you lose a job, uh, there was somebody who made a reference this week to Mad Men. I've never even really seen it, but, but, but this where this character was losing his job. And, and he said, Look, wait, if I'm not working, I don't know who I am. So all of us have this sense now, if you don't want something like that to be the spark for asking this question, let me encourage you then to create space in your life somehow, somehow, even if it's just taking a weekend away or a day away and just kind of with no responsibilities where you have no particular role and just say, okay, that's right, I'm Jerry or I'm whatever, whomever you are. Who am I? What does it mean to be a loved child of God first and foremost? See, here's why it's important. Please hear me. I'm still a father. That's a part of my identity. I'm a pastor. I, I, I'm a husband. I'm all those things. But here's the thing. When your primary identity is, is your baptism, meaning that you are a loved child of God, it means that you then are able to do those things freely. You're able to be a father freely and a husband freely or a mother freely or a pastor freely or whatever your job is, you see. Because when you don't have that, here is what happens. Your job becomes everything, which means the ups and downs of the job, there you are. And if you want to find a workaholic, you will find someone who has forgotten his or her baptism. Because you have to do everything you can to make sure that you are approved at your job because of the fact, why? That's who I am. If your spouse becomes your primary identity, and this is like who I am as a husband or a wife, then what will happen is you will put an immense amount of pressure in that relationship to fulfill things that only God is to fulfill. And if that person seems unable to do so, which nobody can, then all of a sudden you will either be incredibly unhappy or you will try to find it somewhere else. And if it's in your children, we all know what happens then. We see this, wow, a lot in our area. You begin to live vicariously through them. I've said this before. If you see parents screaming at their children out on the ball field, losing their minds, or if academics or band or whatever else it may be, don't say anything moving other than just saying, hey, if you've been baptized, you might want to remember that. Because when you begin, when your identity becomes your child, all of a sudden that child needs to succeed. Because if they don't, what does it say about you? But you see, when you know that you are a loved child of God, you've been baptized by God, all of a sudden then, they don't need to fulfill that deepest part of you, but they are gifts 
to be loved and enjoyed. That doesn't mean there won't be times of frustration, that you won't be down at times if things aren't going well at work. It doesn't mean that. It simply means that you can hold those things more loosely because you don't need them to be all that you are. You are a loved child of God. Do not forget your baptism. Now, let's be clear. It isn't just roles in which our, in which our identities can be confused. It's also other things, politics. Much literature has been written about how when, as, 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 as the decline of religion comes, the new religion, the new church is politics. You hear it. Why, you may wonder, do people put so much energy about who wins or doesn't win? Why is there so much angst these days? Why is there so much passion? And, and if your person wins, then, oh, finally the kingdom is coming. And if your person loses, clearly Hades is knocking on the door. It is likely because we have forgotten our baptism and we have forgotten that whoever is on the, in the White House is not on the throne. So we forget our identity. We easily begin to put our identity in what we have, how it compares to others, how successful we are. That, that tells us how we are doing. We put our identity in all of these other sorts of things that can easily begin to think this is what makes us happy, your social status or how many people are liking your posts? Doesn't mean that politics are bad. Doesn't mean going on vacation is bad. Doesn't mean being on social media is bad. It's hard for me to say that. But it does mean that it does not become our identity. But I also want to be clear about this. This is a sneaky one. The way that you follow Jesus can easily become the way in which you begin to say, this is my identity. How well am I loving my neighbor? And my sense of identity is how well I'm loving my neighbor. How well am I doing this time of silence, these 10 minutes? Will Jerry and Jesus be proud? How well am I doing this or that? All of those kinds of things. Those things are all great. Please hear me. But those things do not affect whether or not you are a loved child of God. You see, there are so many voices externally, internally, that will keep vying and they get louder and louder if we do not shut them up. Martin Luther, the famous reformer from the 16th century, he kind of famously wrestled with his sense of who he was and, and, and whether or not uh, who he was was enough and whether or not God loved him and is grace enough. And he wrestled with his own inner demons. He wrestled with his own struggles. And as he would report it, when he would get in these moments of depression or despair, he could hear the tempter saying to him, Luther, you are hopeless. You're stubborn. You're prideful. You're ignorant. You're arrogant. You are a no good sinner. And Luther would respond in this way. True enough, devil. True enough. But I have been baptized. True enough, Satan. These things you're saying may be true, but none of them can overcome the fact that I have been baptized. None of them can overcome the fact that I am a loved child of God. I love what Joanna Adams said in a sermon about this. She said, you know, I just picture God at times looking down and saying, you know what? She ain't perfect, but she is mine. I think baptism is actually 
a movement of protest, a movement of defiance, saying that no matter what others may say about you, no matter what you may say about yourself, you may look in the mirror at times and say, oh man, I don't like what I see. And in that moment, what I want you to hear is this, you have been baptized. You are a loved child of God. You may be undergoing criticism. It may even be accurate. But in the very middle of that, I want you to hear this, you are loved loved by God. You may be struggling through whatever it may be, maybe criticism that isn't fair. It doesn't matter what it is. Maybe you did have a parent who just never could fully love you or never at least express it. And in those despairing moments, I want you to know this. I want you to think about this. You are a loved child of God. I imagine it much like a parent. You know, if you have a child, you know that times when your kids are going through trouble, maybe it's of their own uh, fault, maybe it isn't. But no matter what, no matter matter what anyone might say to them. Do you know what you want to do? See, you guys are not Presbyterian when it comes to your kids because I've seen you. You know what you want to say? You want to say, I don't care what they may say. I don't care how much is true. I love you. You are my child. And this is what God says to you when you are baptized. When those waters are coming, you are also hearing God say, you are loved. So many times, and I get it, we did it last week with Charlotte, we do it with all of my children, we did it with all of my children, we dress them up, it looks beautiful, and I think that's the way it should be, it's wonderful, but there's a part of me that after we pour the water over, thinks that we should then give them a suit of armor that says, here you go now, because when you go out, what you need to know beyond the shadow of a doubt is that no matter what you may hear, You are loved by God. But it is hard for us to remember that. And that's why this morning what I want us to do is I want us to tangibly remember our baptism. So the way that we're going to do this, this is not another baptism, so let me just kind of tell you what we're going to do this morning. You're going to come forward, kind of like you do in communion. You guys are savvy veterans in the front row. You know what to do. I'm not going to explain it. Just follow the person in front of you. This is where the tapestry is helpful. And someone's going to take some water, and they're just going to pour a little bit on your hand. And they're going to look at you, and I I want to encourage you to just look at them right in the eye. And they're going to say, you are loved by God. Or you are a child of God. Now you may be saying this morning, you know I haven't been baptized. Can I come in? Can I, can I still come over? Yeah, absolutely. You're not remembering your baptism on this day. But you are certainly going to be reminded that you are loved by God. And, and maybe this will serve as an impetus over the next couple of weeks for you to begin to think about, well, maybe I want this more tangible kind of sign of the fact that I'm loved by God. That's why I would encourage you to talk to me or, or Pastor Scott about that. But, 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 but all of you are invited to come down and just to remember whether you can fully embrace it at this point or not. And know this, you are loved by God. And so with that, let us pray. God, there are so many voices. The truth is, most of them probably come from within. Who tell us that we are not enough, we're not good enough, 
We're not smart enough. We're not wealthy enough. We're not popular enough. Whatever it may be. This morning, God, we get to be reminded that the one voice that is most important is yours. Your voice says, we are loved by you. So I pray this morning as we feel this water that we would be reminded beyond the shadow of a doubt of your love for us just as you loved your son, Jesus. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.